0: Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for Curious Minds on KGRA Radio, and here is your host, Gary Cochulillo.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochulillo, and before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening, and also thank the contributors to my show. Who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing and Protection Magic, my binaural production engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, Go to EverythingImaginable2020.com, and you'll find a bunch of information there on how you can contribute. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Catherine Children And she has written a book called Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works. Now, I know that conspiracy is not the first thing that pops into people's minds when you hear about Shakespeare. And I think most of us, people sort of accept like the regular version of that Shakespeare was actually a person. However, there is a lot of controversy about who Shakespeare really was. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, Catherine... (laughs) Yeah, Catherine is an expert on that. Thank you for being on today.
2: My pleasure.
1: So um, I've heard all kinds of uh, different theories about who Shakespeare was. You know, I've heard um, everything from Edward Kelly to Sir Francis Bacon, Bacon to a relative of Jesus. And, uh, and I believe the one that you also covered here is Stratford Man. Um, so, and I've also heard that possibly that Shakespeare wasn't actually a person, but he was actually like a group of playwrights also. Um, so who was Shakespeare?
2: <laughs> Shakespeare, well, there were two Shakespeare's, two William Shakespeare's, and both were involved in the theater, at about the same time, one of them was a man who was born with the name William Shakespeare. Actually, it's, if you look at the records, it was pronounced Shaksper, because it was often spelled with a short A, and with an X, like Shax, S-H-A-X-P-E-R. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a real person, born in Stratford-on-Avon in 1564, and he died in 1616, and there's the other William Shakespeare, which really turns out to be a man's pen name, and that's somehow there was a confusion between these two entities. I think that it was done after both of their deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason could be, I think, like very likely was political, because the plays in, in, in some respects had uh, political commentaries, or or um, even lampooning of some important people at the court. and um, by throwing the authorship on the Stratford man, who was someone who had no court connections at all, um, he could not really have any opinions um, or give a portrayal of important people because he never met them. So no one, you won't read that into the text. So having the Stratford man be the great author decontextualizes the works. Mm -hmm. I think that was the main goal. But the Stratford man was involved in the theater. In in my assessment, he was a theater financier. Um, I think he loaned money to acting companies and um, got, you know, at interest and and then he he also bought shares in two theaters but you know this is all in the documents documentary evidence he was definitely involved in theater he was also named as uh, a member of an acting company so his involvement and his being a person is absolutely undisputed in my opinion but but with this Stratford, we call him the Stratford man because he's born in Stratford on Avon and died there. Um, there's no lifetime evidence that connects him with writing or education, and, and you know, you do need those two elements to uh, <laughs> to write as prolifically as the great author did, and life experiences and uh, exposure and understanding of places in Europe. there are so many things that are are subjects that are packed in the Shakespeare plays, like French, Italian, um, customs of aristocracy, the Bible, the law. Shakespeare's knowledge of the law was, was what got Mark Twain interested in this topic. And he even wrote a book in 1909 called Is Shakespeare Dead?, he, he absolutely knew it was not the Stratford man. Um, so you, you look at all these incredible topics, including rhetoric, which is only taught at university level. Um, wh- where is the William Shakespeare listed in enrollment records? They survive, mm-hmm. but nowhere um, can you find it in a university, in a law school you know, anywhere, even the local grammar school in Stratford-on-Avon, although we have to admit those records haven't survived um, right. for, the, for the years that the Stratford man supposedly went to school, but, you know, it doesn't exist. And also we have no, nothing in the man's handwriting, you know, letters or manuscripts of any sort for the Stratford man. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. If you look at his will, his will has no mention of him being a writer he had Sheikh uh, the great author had several unpublished play manuscripts at the time of his death there was no allowance for these manuscripts there was no prop play properties that you would expect to find or anything that would hint that this guy was an actor or a writer zero no books and books were very expensive back then so if you had books you would mention it um so he he was, the reprimand, he was a, a well-off person. I think he, he got his money from the theater, but not from writing. Hmm. And um, that's what we need to, you know, separate these two entities. A, a man using a pen name and a man born with a similar name.
1: Right. So when I read, when I've seen, uh, I've seen quite a few Shakespeare plays, and my thinking is that he would have been somebody... From the of nobility, who um had a lot of uh, insight into how the royalty worked and the courts worked.
2: Yes, and the author of the Shakespeare plays has an aristocratic point of view, and he he knew their language, their customs, their sports like tennis. You know, they didn't have public tennis courts back then, <laughs> you know, so very few people had exposure to tennis. Um, yeah, I everything points to him being someone who had noble connections um, and royal connections. And um, it simply can't be accounted for with the Stratford Band, zero. And yet, um, like, for example, John Lilly, he was a, a playwright of the of the fifth 1580s, slightly before what they when they think Shakespeare wrote, and we have correspondence that exists between Lily and Queen Elizabeth. He wrote plays for her. We, we, he was a real human being. You know, we have we have all sorts of documents about him, but absolutely no connection with a William Shakespeare um, at the royal court. Um, and yet we have two play, plays that we know the Queen saw because in the early printed editions, when the Stratford Man was alive, the edition of Merry Wives of Windsor and the edition of Love Labor's Loss says on the title page, that the Queen saw these plays. And later, um, after she died, uh, another playwright said that um, Shakespeare was, lo- you know, Greatly admired, or you know, really truly enjoyed the Shakespeare plays for both Queen Elizabeth and King James. So where where is Shakespeare there? You know, again, it's zero, and all these zeros um, point to really a pen name. Right. <laughs> he was really had a different name, right? And that name was enrolled in law schools and Cambridge and Oxford, and um, you know. That type of thing. So that's the name that we're looking for. So and,
1: so, he was purposely trying to hide his identity so he could kind of get his political points across?
2: Partially, partially, yes. You needed that cover. Um, and there were many people during this day who used pen names. Um, and or they just used their initials or they wrote things with no signature whatsoever. But um, the main profile of an author who wrote plays and poems who didn't want his name to be known means it's somebody of high rank. And um, because it was a, a kind of a social code back then, if you were had these type of interests, you you should keep it quiet because you want to protect your family name. Um, this type of activity was considered frivolous. Um, and we even have, you know, they use that exact term. This is, you know, frivolous. And uh, so nobility don't, they didn't want to be known as a poet or a playwright. So they had to protect their family reputations. And so this is what we're talking about. The Stratford Band had no type of title at all. I mean, he later, his father um, attained a coat of arms, which gave him the right to say he's a gentleman, but you know that, that came later. Um, so before that time, there would have been no problem if he, he was a, a writer. So you have to kind of do a survey of all the, the subjects that the great author was learned in. Right. And you have to look at the plays themselves for, you know, recurring themes. And then you have to look at nobility back then or people who are highly ranked who wrote plays. Mm-hmm. And if you put all these things, you know, in a lot, in all these ducks in a row, um, you're going to come up with Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. And that was this was done by the founder of our theory, um, J. Thomas Loney. And this is 1920. So the true author has been known for 100 years. But uh, most people um, still are not aware of this. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's something that English professors don't want to talk about. Um, they seem to prefer the status quo. So but- who,
1: who was Edward Vere?
2: He was um, a, one, a member of one of the oldest families in England. See, back then, there were, you know, if you were an earl or a duke or a baron, you know, you were maybe the first, the second or the third. He was an earl of, of, with six, 16 previous ones. He was the 17th earl of Oxford. So he had, you know, next to the queen, I mean, he was among the, the highest ranked individuals in the land. So he especially the Veer family, um, very old, you know in his day it was like a four or five hundred year old family. so and that was like worth gold. So you really want to protect your, your reputation. Um, and he was really a child prodigy very you know, very early. Um, he uh, had tutors when he was very young, several tutors when he was eight, they enrolled him in Cambridge University, which was very, you know, that, that was a young age. I mean, there were young people at Cambridge, but eight is super young. Mm-hmm. So he he had to have displayed um, this, you know, this great intellect very early on. And in fact, when he was uh, 12 or 13, one of his tutors said that, basically he's taught him everything that he knows <laughs> he knows everything <laughs> so he he really was a special child um he got his bachelor's from cambridge and then later uh from oxford he got his uh, a masters degree and from that point on he went to law school i mean all of this is documented um a few years later uh he got married. Who did he marry? He married the daughter of one of the most most powerful men in England, William Cecil, Lord Burley, his title, Lord Burley. And many scholars see Lord Burley lampooned in Hamlet in the character of Polonius, who was the king's counselor. So you have that connection right off the bat. And many, many see um, his wife, Anne, as the counterpart of Ophelia, who died young. So did his wife. Um, In the 1570s, when Oxford was 25, he took a grand tour of Europe, um, spending the most amount of time in in Italy. Um, And you can see his love of Italy in the Shakespeare plays. I mean, several plays are set there. And even, um, uh, a, a great scholar, Richard Rowe, he wrote, recently wrote a book called "The Shakespeare Guide to Italy," where he, he, you know, he he looked at several Shakespeare plays and he noted like these really kind of incidental details, um, things that you wouldn't find in a travel book, um, mm-hmm. where that Shakespeare mentions in the play. So he took it upon himself, because uh, of course he liked Italy, Mr. Rowe. Um, he, he took several t- trips to Europe, to Italy, to see if he can find these specific locations. And he found many, many of them. Um, and I really, you know, would encourage people to, to, who, who like Italy to, to look at his book, because that'll tell you that the great author went to Italy. But, but the Stratford man, absolutely um, no evidence that he left England. And, you know, back then you needed permission to leave. So, you know, there's no such accounting in the records. So how did the great author learn this? You you ask a Shakespeare professor and he'll go, oh, well, you know, maybe he picked it up in the taverns, you know, from (laughs) foreign travelers. Right. Uh, I don't think so.
1: (laughs) Interesting. Um, So... There must be original manuscripts. Do you think that the original manuscripts still exist?
2: Oh, I really hope they do. But obviously they're hidden somewhere. They're, they they were obviously gathered up because not one page or a fragment of a per page has survived. So uh, they've got to have been gathered up and put somewhere. Where that is, I, I don't know. Um I think it's very evident that the great author did not want his plays published in his lifetime, and why would that be the case? Um, Because of the social taboos. Nobility do not publish while they're alive. After you die, it's a different story, but during your lifetime, no. So you look at the Shakespeare plays, the early printed editions, and you can see it for yourself they were mostly pirated editions. They're not complete in any manner. I mean, it's already hard to read Elizabethan English, you know, <laughs> with their spellings, right? <laughs> yes. It's already difficult. And, and Shakespeare's high, high, high knowledge and vocabulary. That's another little barrier. But um, these early printed texts, it, they're incomplete. You know, verse is written as, as, uh, in written common way. Common lines are written as verse, there are missing passages, there are missing characters. They call them ghost characters because they'll they'll list a character, but he never shows up in the scene. <laughs> um, there's lots of irregularities like that, and it makes it very difficult. And, you know, people can go on the British Library website and look at these early editions and try and read them for yourself. It's It's difficult and it's incomplete, many of them, I would say. A good deal of them, um, the the Shakespeare professors, you know, give these you know terms of good quarto and bad quarto. Quarto means the page size, uh, a quarter of a big of a, a regular page. So, yeah, all you have to do is look at those. So this shows us the great author did not provide printers with the his originals. So how did they get these texts? Unless I had
1: a cohort. Think,
2: well, maybe, but my guess is they had stenographers and they had stenography back then. I think they had stenographers sitting in audiences where the plays were being performed and they took these notes. And, you know, in some cases you have an actor's name instead of a character's name. That That's, you know, a giveaway that he is watching a performance and writing. He didn't even know the character name. He just knew the actor. Um, so... This, I think this is what was going on, thank goodness, because you know we may not have have had some of these plays, right?
1: Hmm.
2: Kind of like the Beetle tapes, you know <laughs> so uh, but but
1: the people who are doing the plays had to get their script from somewhere
2: that's that's true. that's true. um it it could be that the uh, they had themselves incomplete versions or maybe they only gave certain portions of the play to the actors just only the actors speaking part not the entire work mm. in some in some cases they may have had the actor recite his lines to a scribe so uh, and and actually these uh, methods are acknowledged by Shakespeare or English professors you know they, they acknowledge this could have happened you know but I think what they don't really emphasize that really it's it probably was the case in the in the majority of these early printed texts. Um, even in uh, 1623, 36 Shakespeare plays were printed, um, and 20 had never been in print at all. Even those are not that in very good condition, and they even used some of the bad early printed editions to, for this edition. So I. I so what this tells me is we really have not read the real Shakespeare plays we we've, we've read bootlegged versions right uh, What we read today is a result of several hundred years of editing like you know, mm-hmm. great authors and thank goodness you know great editors you know thank goodness they did that so we, so these works are, are re- you know readable um, but unfortunately without the original, there are a lot of misinterpreted lines. And, um, you know, every edited version that one one reads, there'll there'll be some notice of, we don't know really what he meant here, or we think the line was this instead of that, you know. So um, these are problems that most people are not aware of.
1: Wow. So who... Where do you think the originals? Like I would think by now, somebody who the even if the originals are in the hands of a family, somebody would be like, man, I'm gonna get a fortune for these and would release them.
2: That's true. Um, I my guess is if they could be just sitting somewhere that people somebody doesn't know about, or maybe they're in a wall, or maybe they're in a, the floor of a church. I mean. You know, when, I, I, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that at some point they will come out. Mm. Um, and that would just that would be so marvelous, and it would just open up a whole new world of Shakespeare studies.
1: The plays themselves, do you think that they were changed over time um, by different people, like people at, inserting their own lines and characters and whatnot to make it fit a particular setting? Because, like, I know I've seen. Um, Shakespeare plays like for example I saw much Ado about nothing and the setting was like world war 2 so so they yes. like they kind of demodified it to, to fit that setting uh, is it possible that some of the ones that we we're reading are not actually in their original settings
2: um well yeah in the sense that um like there are many um like roman set in, plays set in roman times like julius caesar and mm-hmm. coriolanus like that but i think that yeah i think they probably had the the original costume of that period but i think what the the commentary was really about the english court and the english you know, the english people is that what you mean or
1: um i just wonder if like what we what were looking at is just uh, plays that have been Adapted over centuries, and what we have now is just a whole bunch of adapted texts.
2: Well, yeah, in the in the like, in like, sense, like,
1: is there any like real difference between like, say, the earliest writings that you're able to locate of Shakespeare, and compare them to like later ones that you find like in the high school or something? Or are, are there big differences? Yeah,
2: there there is uh, because. Because, like I said, they, they were, I think, they were bootleg diversions, and they—they they were incomplete. And yes, um, in the 1700s and 1800s, 1900s, uh, editors, you know, tried to make sense of them. And in some cases, you know, a certain editor's version stuck. But if you might. If you look at the very first printed edition, you might see something different. Mm-hmm. So yes, a lot, a lot of what these editors added has have become accepted, but uh, it's always best to really go to the original and see. You know, Sometimes they heard things wrong. They heard a, w- a word wrong, I think, and they wrote it down and they meant another word. And so the editors over time maybe changed what they thought was the real word. Yeah. sometimes they're right, sometimes they were wrong <laughs> they're right, it, yeah um, but as far as there being, uh, I, maybe you're, you were thinking also of collaboration if, yeah. if, if mm-hmm. incomplete I think there were incomplete plays that survived that later writers of the period added to and I think the prime example of that is um, Two Noble Kinsmen and um, the first, third, and fifth, I think, act have that Shakespearean ring to it. But the second and fourth acts are totally different. And um, if you look at the title page of when that play was first printed, it said it's by Shakespeare and uh, another author, Fletcher. So they shared the same title page. So I think that, yes, I think that, Fletcher got a hold of an older Shakespeare play that was incomplete and he added to it Mm. and it, and it sold. But I think that the great author was dead at that point, you know, when it happened. So I think there is some evidence of that. Um, The, the character names in two noble kinsmen are Palamon and our city. And that was also the name of a play in 1566 that was performed before Queen Elizabeth at Oxford University. 1566 was the year that Oxford got his master's degree, and he was there at Oxford University too. So I think that this was a very early play, uh, to Noble Kinsmen. It just, the, this title was added, but I think it really was Palamon in our city that the Queen saw. There are other plays, I think, that Shakespeare plays that were performed before the Queen that scholars don't acknowledge. Like, for example, um, in 1577, when the Stratford band was like 13 years old, um, the Queen saw a history of error. That was the title, History of Error. Well, that corresponds beautifully with Shakespeare's play, Comedy, The Comedy of Errors. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Now, they think it was written in 1595, like almost 20 years later. So they say, oh, no, you know, history of, of error can't be because the Stratford man was, you know, just a teenager. There's no way. So things like this, you know, they, they come to a, a dead end and mm-hmm. they can't consider it anymore. And there were several other plays with either characters or situations that you know because very very limited uh, information was written down about these plays that the queen saw um but i think that they correspond to, to some shakespeare plays wow. so really the whole period has to be re re-examined mm. under a new a new viewpoint and mm. the viewpoint is the great author was not the stratford man if we get rid of put him out of the picture. And by the way, he never he never claimed to be the author anyway, and his family didn't. Um, if you we put him to the side and just look at the evidence of the period, it's it's gonna tell us the plays were written decades earlier than what the typical English professor will tell you today.
1: Wow. So one of the things that I find that that's like, like, everything that you've said so far does point to Edward DeVere. However, for me, there's still one missing element with this guy, uh-huh. which is the supernatural, the astrology. Because, like, like say, like, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. In um, a lot of other like Hamlet, all, almost all a lot of these plays include some type of supernatural element. And I believe that's one of the reasons why a lot of people will look towards, like, Edward Kelly
2: you know who, who was Edward? I'm sorry, I don't know who he was. He
1: was Queen Elizabeth's astrologer. I thought
2: call. that was Doctor D.
1: Oh yeah, I'm mean, sorry, John D. Yes.
2: John D. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. The Earl of Oxford corresponded with John D. It's on record. D himself said so. When Oxford was 20 years old. So there's a definite connection between John D. and the Earl of Oxford. And many scholars, traditional Shakespeare scholars, see a connection between Lord Prospero in the Tempest. He was the Mm -hmm. magician who was in exile on on the small island with his daughter. And they see a connection between D., Dr. D., and... um, Prospero and the reason uh, both conversed with spirits in in, in, Pro, in Prospero's case it was Ariel his spirit mm-hmm. and D used a spirit mirror um, a certain type of mirror to in invoke spirits
1: yes and
2: that that mirror is at the British library anyway hey we had it and D and Prospero they were both deeply studied man who, you know, interested in a lot of subjects, greatly valued their libraries. Um, like Dee, for example, he had several thousand books. He was one of the largest libraries in England, private libraries. Um, and they both were showmen. Mm-hmm. Um, Prospero entered Taint his daughter and his her fiance with like these pageants where you know these ethereal figures suddenly appear and they have they were like Greek goddesses and they had speaking parts. Like this was a a scene in the play. So he he put on these shows, right? Well, so did Dr. D. He put on a, a Greek play at Cambridge University. And the special effects were so good that they accused him of sorcery. So <laughs> we have these, you know, we have these parallels uh, between the two. Well, we have no evidence that the Strafford man knew Dr. D, but we have documentary evidence that D knew the Earl of Oxford. So in, in, in every case, if you want to, you know, match the Earl of Oxford's life with a character or the works, you're going to find it. You're going to find it. That's what's so exciting about having the real author. It all comes alive. <laughs> wow.
1: See, I didn't know anything about that connection. That's pretty yes. cool. So that yeah. does explain his his knowledge of the supernatural and even some of the characters that kind of resemble D.
2: Yes, yes. And actually, Oxford himself was accused of Conjuring spirits. Um, this was done by uh, two of his enemies, uh, the Earl of Oxford. In 1581, he he told the Queen about these two former friends and what they were up to. So they came back and made up all these terrible things about him. But I mean, it may have been, there may have been a kernel of truth in that he was interested, perhaps you know, in in this type of Thing, you know bringing up spirits dead spirits it's possible i mean you see it in hamlet
1: yeah absolutely uh,
2: where his the ghost of his father you know his comes out and mm-hmm. you see it in um, other plays yeah. uh, like macbeth um, the, the murdered people come back and, mm-hmm. and kind of haunt macbeth so he, the great author definitely had a, an interest in the supernatural
1: Uh, That's for sure. Yeah. So also the picture. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, the portrait of Devere. You know, he's on the cover of your book. Yes. And I'm kind of like, man, that doesn't look like Shakespeare at all. And then I was flipping (laughs) through your book, and I found this other guy, um, the Earl of Pembroke, and he looks an awful lot like Shakespeare that I am familiar with.
2: Well, you know, the the image, the first image of Shakespeare, quote unquote, appeared on this book of Shakespeare plays, 36 Shakespeare plays. And that was 1623. Earl of Oxford was dead, and so was the Stratford man. and And in this book, the first page is that famous black and white image that we all know with the big head, big forehead, uh, kind of strange um, and and. The thing is, that image, we don't know where it came from because the strapper man was dead Mm -hmm. for seven years at this point. So in my opinion, it probably was a made-up image. Some people, if you look closely at that black and white engraving, um, under the ear, you can see two lines instead of one line, you know, outlining the face. What is that second line for? And you can kind of You know, this wooden appearance of the face and the weird hair, it could be a mask. Mm -hmm. It could could be pointing to a mask. Mm -hmm. Um, But they portrayed him as a gentleman, which the Stratford man became a gentleman uh, when his father died. So it's a very curious book. And it was this book that actually started the idea that the great author was from Stratford-on-Avon in these opening prefatory pages, the first 16 pages, and there are tributes to Shakespeare in them. And one tribute mentions the the phrase sweet swan of Avon, referring to Shakespeare. And then a few pages later, by another writer, uh, there's a, a phrase to Shakespeare mentioning his Stratford monument. So you put these... Two together, And the reader of this book is going to say, oh, Shakespeare was from Stratford-on-Avon. So even though that phrase is not in the book, even though the Stratford man's coat of arms is not in that book, even though there's no biographical material whatsoever in the book, right? right. But there is a monument to a Shakespeare in the Stratford-on-Avon church. And it was when this book was published, a little bit after, is when people started going there because they wanted to see the Stratford Monument to this supposed Shakespeare. But what they saw was different than what we see today. Um, if you, I'm sure you noticed in my book, yeah. I have two images one, mm-hmm. a, an image of today's Stratford Monument of Shakespeare in the church. And then what somebody sketched and later became an engraving in 1634, you know, very early. And they are two different images. Um, The early image shows a man holding a sack and a man with a long mustache and a beard. Mm -hmm. And today's monument, the figure has an upturned mustache, a short goatee, and he has no pen and paper. He, he He's not holding a sack. Sorry, he's holding a pen and paper. So it, it they're two totally different images. Um, but if you ask the professor, you'll go, oh, yeah. So this early, the man who was drawing it early, he got it wrong because look at today's monument, right? But uh, that's circular reasoning. Um, you know, you have to look at what others... You know, you have to take what they wrote down into account. And the man who made this image, he was renowned for drawing monuments and with great accuracy. So it's a poor excuse.
1: Hmm. Has there ever been a grave located for Shakespeare?
2: Yes, also in the church. Um, The the monument is on the wall, but in the floor, not too far away from the monument, is a grave, and it has no name on it. It just said, um, you know, don't don't mess with these bones, my bones. In other words, cursed be he who moves my bones. That's not the whole quote, but like that. So it has a curse on it instead of a name, which was very unusual you can't find another example of that period. So there's something very strange going on. Do you think that's
1: where the uh, original manuscripts could be?
2: um, Some people think it's possible. Um, They recently uh, did like a sonar or something on it. And it's a fairly shallow grave. And it's kind of short. So... You know, I. It it seems like someone was not buried in there, Um, but they won't open it. So, I guess we'll never know, for sure. (laughs) But really, it was not the great author anyway. He he was not from Stratford-on-Avon. He was, he he, he, in the latter part of his days, the Earl of Oxford. He lived in Hackney, which was outside, little outside of London, and uh, he he died and he was buried in uh, the local church there of course unfortunately that church hasn't survived but there are early accounts that the earl of oxford was his it was buried in westminster abbey so it could be that he his body was exhumed and they put him in westminster abbey now that was a you know a, a great honor for anyone to be buried there mm-hmm. uh, the great author was ex- his works were very popular in his lifetime, and in a way, he would have been expected to to be buried in Westminster Abbey. Um, so it, it it would be fitting if he was, but we don't know where because there's no marked grave in Westminster Abbey showing the Earl of Oxford there. So it's kind of a mystery of you know where where is he actually?
1: Wow. Yeah. I'm going I'm going to veer off the path a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. <laughs> um one of the theories um about the original manuscripts is there's a theory that they're buried on Oak Island. Do you think that's possible?
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, I yeah, I've heard about that and it's uh, Oak Island's a very interesting thing. Um I don't know it's been What's the current state of it? I mean, have have they gotten to the bottom of it yet? Or? They
1: um, so far the the only thing that they have found, actually, are old pieces of parchment and book bindings, like you know, at about 160 feet down into the ground. So there is some evidence that something, some type of manuscripts or books were buried there.
2: Hmm. But it's underwater, you know. Yeah. yeah. It would have to have been in some sort of airtight container. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, the whole Oak Island mystery is very really interesting. How it was, it, the whole island was engineered, right? Yeah. Um, to flood at, at, at any attempt to dig underneath. So it had to have been something extremely valuable and important. So I, I would love it if somebody can get, get in there. I, it's, With today's technology, I'm really surprised that they haven't. Unless they have and they haven't said what it is. Uh,
1: It's possible that they have. I've heard other stories that they have found about what they have found, but they won't release it to the public. But uh, Mm, I'm not going to say it here. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So. Do you think that 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 scholars, um, like, like you you mentioned a lot, like about like college professors and and I'm sure even high school teachers are teaching the wrong information about Shakespeare, about who he was and where he came from. Do you think that they'll ever change?
2: I I hope they do, uh, but it seems to be in their at least, um, you know, the higher level, the you know, the well-known English professors. Um, it seems like it's in their best interest to just leave things as they are. Um, it would be kind of embarrassing that they didn't do this, that you know, research this themselves, get to the bottom of it themselves. Uh, they don't want to risk perhaps their PhDs and and their books. Um, You know, there's like a new Shakespeare biography every year, but all it is is information of the the era, right? Mm -hmm. And then speculation, because what what we have for the Stratford man is, I mean, these are the facts, you know, his his christening, his children's christening, purchasing real estate, uh, owing taxes, trying to get, you know, money in, in lawsuits, that type of thing. I mean, that's basically what they have. And then his two uh, theater uh, shares that he owns, you know, shares in a theater and that he was a member of an acting company. That's all they have. It's, it's tiny. They, they can't date the plays on this. They can't. You can't. There, there are no life parallels in 40-plus in Shakespeare plays. No life parallels in Shakespeare's sonnets, which were highly personal, um, where the author talks about himself and the people he loves in in, in incredibly beautiful language. And, you know, he describes himself even in these sonnets as a nobleman. Um, Like, for example, sonnet 62. Methinks no face so gracious is is mine. Mm-hmm. So he's saying I have a gracious face. <laughs> I'm gracious. <laughs> well, Shakespeare used that term "gracious" for people of high nobility or royalty. So I mean, he's he's describing himself. And then a, another great one I often bring up is number one twenty-five in the sonnets, where he says. Were it ought to me I bore the canopy with my extern, the outward honoring. Okay, what does this mean? Um, Bearing the canopy meant only one thing. It meant holding, being one of four people holding like um, a canopy or four poles, (laughs) holding a canopy over Queen Elizabeth. That's what it means, holding the canopy. Um, To be one of those four people, you have to be either, you know, some important official or somebody of rank, which would not apply to the Stratford Men, but it certainly applied to the Earl of Oxford um, being a high nobility and a courtier, a regular courtier, um, you know, surrounded, you know, always in Queen Elizabeth's court. And so, but what is the context of this line? He's saying, Was it anything to me that I bore the canopy? (laughs) Did did it mean anything to me? I mean, that's what he's saying. Um, That doesn't sound like somebody who received this tremendous honor. That sounds like a bored courtier. Like, (laughs) you know, he's, I've had enough of this show, you know. So, you know, these things point to a courtier somebody of high rank. Um, there Absolutely. were other, I, you know, my book has many excerpts, yeah. pretty much showing that the great author was somebody of high rank, and also um, the the great author was obsessed by a dark lady. They they call her the dark lady, and uh, who who makes him sin? Well, the Earl of Oxford was also obsessed with a dark lady. Her name was Anne Vavazor. She was one of the Queen's attendants. And he had an affair with her. He was already married, but he had an affair with her. And um, they had a child. And when the Queen found out about it, she threw them both, and the child, in the Tower of London. So he was in jail (laughs) for about three, four months. Um, So, I mean, here you have a perfect life parallel. And after he was released, he didn't stop his, you know his interest in her and actually her family members had fights with his servants in the streets. They had street fights. And that's very reminiscent of Romeo and Juliet.
1: You know? Very much so. so yeah. I mean, these
2: are just a couple life parallels that fit perfectly. With the Earl of Oxford, um, the, the profile of Hamlet, He he was a prince, right? Mm -hmm. A nobleman, a university student, a courtier, a traveler. Um, He was on a ship and it was attacked by pirates. He killed somebody. He patronized an acting company. Um, All of this applied to the Earl of Oxford. He was in a ship when he took his grand tour of Europe, when he was coming back. His ship was attacked by pirates and he lost all his possessions. He was stripped, basically. So, again, it's a perfect parallel. And, you know, that it the plays come alive. You can read them in living color when you have a biography to match it with. Right now, we don't have a biography. All we have is, you know, somebody who owed taxes. That's about <laughs> as colorful... As it gets, yes, he was a member of an acting company, but we don't we don't know the roles that he played, so there's no evidence that he actually acted. No evidence he wrote he wrote anything. So you know we have to, you know, raise doubts about his authorship that you know maybe we got the wrong person. And um, there's a great organization uh, at uh, doubtaboutwill. dot On that website is the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt, meaning we doubt the Stratford man was a great author. There is reasonable doubt. So you can read this declaration and you can sign it. Anyone can go on the site, read it, and if they agree with it, sign it. And you can see the other people who have signed, many of them, you know, people with high advanced degrees. And uh, this is, you know, not to a topic not to be dismissed and called you know crazy (laughs) which is what often is the case english professors will do they'll say oh those people don't know you know they don't know anything like us but they're the ones who don't question it but professors of history linguistics professors of law medicine you name it every other field in academia they do see uh, problems here and they do want to get to the bottom of it so that's why that's kind of my mission is to get out and reach the public and tell them that this controversy is out there and let's uh, bring justice to the great author um you know he i think he knew that he wouldn't get credit after his death you know and um he he even asked you know, as Hamlet, the dying words of Hamlet was Horatio, tell my story. And so I think that was the great author saying to his cousin, Horatio Veer, the Earl of Oxford had a first cousin named Horatio, um, to to, to get his story out. I think he, he knew his story wouldn't be out there and somebody else would have to tell it. So, you know, we're kind of Disciples of Horatio, to get it out
1: there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there's definitely a lot of parallels. Are there any living relatives of the, Oxford of Earl, or the Earl of Oxford around today?
2: Um, I, I think there may be, but, you know, it's we're talking 400 years. Uh, they may not know it. Um, there's a lot of today nobility that have devere blood um one of them is uh charles beauclair and he his father is the duke of st albans one day he will be the duke of st albans um and he has uh, given many talks on this topic and he wrote a book on the topic as well so yeah he has been involved and um yeah i think that once it's ex- generally accepted that, that devere was the great author i think in england you're going to have a lot of people checking their family trees <laughs> <laughs> So yeah and he uh, the Earl of oxford he had three daughters just like king lear had three daughters and um they did have children um one of the daughters was married to one of the people who funded the the first folio the the That big book of 36 Shakespeare plays, The Earl of Montgomery. Mm -hmm. Him, he and his brother, The Earl of Pembroke, um, they almost certainly sponsored that book, which was, it must have been very expensive. You know, it's 900 large pages. So it was a big, big outlay. Um, And the book was dedicated to them. So here you have a Devere connection right in there. And actually, um, the Earl of Pembroke was was considering marrying another daughter of the Earl of Oxford. It didn't happen, but the Earl of Oxford certainly knew these two gentlemen. So um, everywhere you look, there's an Earl of Oxford connection.
1: If if I knew that there was any chance of me being connected to him, I would be like, you know, looking to lay claim to that you know, hey, I'm a living descent, descendant of Shakespeare.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's why I'm hoping this whole you know, overturning, you know, the Stratford man, I, I have no animus against the Stratford man. He just wasn't the author. That's all. And it's, it's not his fault that the works were attributed to him. Um, it, this was done by important people mm-hmm. after he died. So, I mean, I have, you know, he he was a real person, and he, I have no problem with him, but he just didn't write the works. So once the world accepts that, um, it's going to be a whole renaissance in Shakespeare studies, and um, maybe maybe everyone's going to start checking their attics, you know, in England, and maybe they'll find something. Maybe they'll find um, a page of a, a Shakespeare play. You know, anyone who finds a page of a Shakespeare play, I mean that would be extremely valuable. Um, and and scholars from all around the world would want to look at it. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Is, is there any, um, I mean, there must be handwritten documents from the Earl, correct? That we yes. have? So, so yes. if it were found, they could compare the handwriting.
2: You could compare the handwriting, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he he has, I forget how many, i I. I put together a, a book of his letters uh, and um, they have Shakespearean ring rings in them. I mean, they're mostly business letters uh, that have survived. I I actually had the privilege of holding one at the Huntington library. They have um, about 10 of his letters. So it's um, it's, it's a very exciting topic and I really hope that your listeners will get interested, and maybe even involved.
1: Yeah, they definitely will. Um, So are there any examples um, of language that's been used in some of the uh, existing letters from the earl that um, are found in some of the Shakespeare writings?
2: There are some similarities. Um, And a, a gentleman wrote a book on that, a big, thick book of the parallels, um it's um by Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R I, yeah Shakespeare Shakespeare revealed in Oxford's letters. So you know I, I can't give an example of it right now, hmm. but there are similarities, yes.
1: I'll have to check that out and see. That'd be interesting. Wow. Um so uh <clears throat> what 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 do you think will happen do do you think that the truth will come out
2: i think that if a few english professors um admit there is reason to doubt I, you know some of the prominent ones if we get two or three of them to admit it i think then uh, other english professors are going to be interested and they're going to look into it and it's going to it, the whole thing will roll over. They're going to see that it could only be the Earl of Oxford. So it, it could happen, it could happen. Um, the uh, A group that I'm part of, the, the doubtaboutwill.org group, um, Shakespeare Authorship Coalition, um, they a few years ago put out a reward of 40,000 uh, pounds to the Shakespeare birthplace trust in England. And um, put the reward out saying, we'll give you a donation of 40,000 pounds if you could prove that the Straffer man was the great author. You know, prove it in a court, in a mock trial. Well, they said no. (laughs) I mean, they they rejected um, a reward. Uh, You know, uh, that's a lot of money, right? It was -hmm. probably back then, maybe uh, $60,000. So um, if it's, so, if there's no doubt whatsoever, why wouldn't they say, Oh, sure, we'll be glad to accept your challenge and prove it? You know, but obviously, they must have some problem with their case for the strapper man if they're not willing to go to bat, <laughs> you know, and, and prove it. And so they're ignoring it. You know, there's something else going on, and it could be too, they, you know, beyond protecting their reputations. Um, You know, maybe uh, they don't want to upset the Stratford-on-Avon tourism, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is very high. And, um, you know, maybe it's tied to economics too, you know.
1: Has anybody um, examined um, some of the correspondences or documentation of the people surrounding uh, the Earl that may point to him being Shakespeare?
2: Well, um, yes, there have been researchers looking, but no, we have not found a smoking gun. What we have is an abundance of circumstantial evidence pointing to the Earl of Oxford. You know, his role, he was a known poet and playwright, known to write anonymously. He was recognized as a very good writer who wrote anonymously. So that's one thing. He had at least two acting troops. He held the lease on a theater. Um, You know, he he patronized musicians, uh, medical people, historians, people doing translations, he was deeply involved in academic, you know, topics as well as the theater and poetry. And, um, I mean, one of the people he who sponsored was Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen. Some, some listeners may be familiar with that title. Um, he wrote a little poem to the Earl of Oxford in The in the Fairy Queen, among a, a few other courtiers. But, I mean, it shows his involvement. And um, so all this is, it's circumstantial, but it's very big. And it's a perlative education, his life experiences parallel in the works. The man doesn't have any of that. Right. <laughs> no.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot yeah. lot more arrows pointing towards yeah. the Earl than there are to Strafferman.
2: Yes, man. it's cumulative circumstantial <laughs> evidence. But that is better than zero evidence. Yeah. Absolutely zero. There is zero lifetime evidence connecting a Stratford man with the Shakespeare works or with education. Incredible. It all happened after he died. It was all manipulated. Hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I would. It would be wonderful if we could find a smoking gun like that. Um, but you know, no, we haven't found it so far. Maybe we will one day. But keep in mind, you know. Although there are a lot of people who know about the Earl of Oxford and the controversy, and they're pretty much convinced he was the one, they're not doing research. It's really a a, a tiny portion of us, of the believers, um, who are doing this work. So, you know, uh, it takes time. It takes time.
1: Do you think if this if do you think it's possible that the smoking book gun has already been found but is being suppressed?
2: It's anything's uh, everything's imaginable, as you would say. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's possible, but if it wasn't revealed, then it, it would mean that maybe you know somebody didn't want to rock the boat. Who, who has it?
1: Right, or some people just want to, don't want to admit that they were ever wrong, especially at, yes. you know, in, a, in a university level. And professors never want to say they're wrong about something.
2: Yes. Yes. So just to and be
1: just to be right, they would suppress
2: it. That it, it could be. I, I hope it's not the case. Um, you know, if it were a Shakespeare play in the Earl of Oxford's handwriting that they didn't let out, that that would really be criminal to the world of scholarship. They would love to see uh, an actual manuscript. Everyone would. So, I don't know. It seems to me that that. A person who revealed such a thing would be extremely famous. I don't think that they would want to pass that up. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know, but I hope they find the manuscripts. They have to be somewhere. I I, I, I highly doubt that there's something that were just tossed away.
2: I know it. It. I I don't want to believe that. I just don't want to believe that. I I have hope that something will turn up. Um,
1: I, I mean. If we can find dead sea scrolls, we should be able to find Shakespeare's manuscripts. Yeah. scrolls, you know what I'm saying? Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah, I think that they should um, you know, maybe do that sonar type of technology in in church walls or, you know, old homes of the period, you know, maybe maybe they can find something. I I wouldn't think it would be in stratford on avon I think the great author if he If he hid them, he hid them himself. So so we have to look at where he would think would be a safe place. We'll see. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much for being on and talking to me today.
2: Thank you for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, this was fantastic. Uh, Before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you and find your book?
2: Um, yes, you can find me and email me at Um and uh, and my book is on Amazon. And I, it would be great if your listeners would go to your local public library and suggest it. You know, it has an ISBN number, and you can find that on my website. And they might buy it. And yeah. it's a it's a book. Um, you know, with 600 footnotes. It's really, you know, it's a research book. And I think there's a lot of information in there that people who know about Shakespeare will find new. So, um, and also we, uh, I'm part of a great organization, uh, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. And you can go to their website and you can read all about the Earl of Oxford and the Stratford Man and there's also a podcast called Don't Quill the Messenger, <laughs> uh, where we have, yeah, we have uh, speakers. I've been on a few of those episodes, we, other researchers talking about the authorship question. It's kind of addicting. Once you get into it, then you want to learn more. And uh, that that show really helps provide that. So, um, yeah, that's. That's about it. And also sign the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt at doubtaboutwill.org. Cool.
1: So send me those links, and I'll put those in the notes of this episode so my oh, listeners yeah. can go to them. And Wonderful. And also get your book and, and, and help uh, help this cause. Because it sounds like there's still a lot there open to investigate.
2: Yes it sounds like you're uh, kind of leaning in that direction, huh?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh,
2: that's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, nothing points to the Stratford man. And, you know, is it to me, even to me, and I'm not far from any type of Shakespearean expert, that it was somebody of nobility. Yes. I, I don't think it takes a genius to figure that out.
2: <laughs> you're right. You're right. and And Shakespeare is a, very important in, in our world, in our culture. Um, he invented, he coined um, over 2,000 words for the English language, you know. And and many many of these words we speak today, many phrases from the plays that we say today, you know, like, to be or not to be, or it's Greek to me, or... <laughs> You know, pound of flesh, you know, that these are Shakespeare, famous Shakespeare phrases. I think a lot of people say them like foregone conclusion. That, mm-hmm. That's straight out of Hamlet. He was the first one to coin these phrases. So uh, right. he's an extremely important person um, in our, even our daily life. And, um, you know, we need to help him out a little bit.
1: Or <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what like, my we, favorite we, quote, something smells rotten in Denmark
2: yes yes <laughs> there you go i mean just read hamlet every other line you, you've heard before you know you and i when i first did it i couldn't believe that there were so many i think it right. first was in here that's that's so incredible
1: to thine own self be true
2: yes yes oh so many, so I, know. many. I know
1: i know I, I the work is just so rich and so profound it's Really, really yes. incredible. I mean, his work was to me spiritual, more than yes. anything else. Uh, it, it, it it touches a part of humanity that no author has been able to to even come close to.
2: Yes, his voice is just. It is almost supernatural. It's it's even holy. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Just you read the sonnets. His sonnets. His personal. His personal ruminations and it's like music. If you say it out loud, it's like music. Um, I mean, he was, had to have been a special, incredible person while he is alive and people, you know, had to have known this, but they all had, all felt compelled to be quiet about it. Uh, I think initially because they were respecting him that he didn't want it to be known during his lifetime. But afterwards, I think it got political and they were afraid to mention it. They were afraid to praise him. That's another great point is when the Stratford man died, no one said a word, zero. And that was unprecedented. Other writers, as soon as they died, you know, within a few months or a year, you'd have some sort of tribute. Not so for Shakespeare, but also curiously, the Earl of Oxford, when he died, no one said anything either. <laughs> when he, you know, there should have been some notice that this great nobleman, just because he was a great nobleman who sponsored many books. I mean, he, he was a prominent person in his lifetime. Everyone was afraid to say anything after he died. So, you know, that's what I try to answer in my book as well. Um, Why this silence? And um, I think it's political. And unfortunately, um, because of it, we've been looking at the wrong man for 400 years. And it's time to correct it after 400 years.
1: Yeah, 400 years. It's been long enough.
2: It's long enough. Long enough. (laughs) And, you know, people who love him you know, he was not only the victim, but people who love the works are also being victimized. They're they're not getting the full picture, and that's not fair.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for being on today.
2: Thank you, Gary. It's my pleasure. My and- favorite topic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and hang on for one second, and
0: I'm just gonna play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot, you can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.